I had, I've kind of mentioned a little bit in our various sermons that we've done. I've, I've, I've tried to introduce you a little bit to my own life story, a little bit to my family. And if you've tuned in a few weeks ago, you heard um, one of my sermons. I talked a little bit about uh, my, my father. And um, uh, my dad, he and I are, are, are really, really similar. And what was so interesting about that sermon is that, um, you know, this year has been one of those years where we found one of some just very small and very few things that we disagree with. Most of the time, we are pretty much hand in hand, exactly the same on so many different uh, topics. Um, it's really funny. A lot of people say that we sound the same. I used to, uh, I remember when we had a landline back in the day, I would answer the phone at the house and uh, people would just immediately start saying, oh, hey, Larry, how's it going? And they would just go into some uh, some some component of, of, of college work because uh, my dad is, is the president of Mid-South Christian College, the college that we use here uh, to broadcast from. And so they, they would start going into details of it and I'd have to stop and be like, no, 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 it's not Larry. This is, this is Nick. Hold on. I'll go get him on the phone. They would hear my voice and immediately just start talking about him. And it's really funny. I've even been told some people here at the school say that we even walk the same. They say we have the same exact gait, the same exact walk, um, the same exact laugh. There's just a million things that are, are really, really similar about us. And uh, as is also similar about us sharing that vocation of ministry, uh, my dad is also somebody who I think um, I just, I love his, his passion for explaining and for really teaching the the Bible. You've probably been able to see that as you have watched our streams. I don't just want to motivate you. I don't just want to be one of those preachers who who, who preaches a sermon that people think is really good. I want to make sure that we are learning uh, the Bible and really learning things from God's Word. And and my dad's been great at that. And so, you know, we're, we're similar in that way. I, I, I would venture to say he's even better at it, actually, than I am. So um, today, I wanted to give you the opportunity to hear from him. I'm going to have—he's he, going to preach for us today and be teaching on the following— story that we've been following in these 12 days of Christmas. And, and I'm really excited for you to hear from him and for you to be able to learn um, a little bit more about uh, this specific story um, in the Christmas story and about a lot of the meanings that kind of can come out of this story. And like I said, I, th- I think he's an amazing uh, Bible teacher. I think you're going to learn a lot. And so I would encourage you to just uh, tune in, li- listen to what he has to say. And, um, and, and think about the ways in which this, uh, this, this following story of Jesus's life um, just contains a lot, of, a lot of life lessons, a lot of lessons from the Word of God that we will be able to apply in our own lives. So before he comes up, let's hear that story. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. 
for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. What an interesting story this is that Matthew tells us about the flight of Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus uh, to the land of Egypt. Uh, just this afternoon, we were talking about this, and I was realizing uh, something that uh, I've, you know, I've read the story over and over and over all my life, and most of you have probably heard the story as well uh, from the time you were just little kids. But uh, it just struck me this afternoon as we were uh, listening to this story again, uh, how often uh, just in the short few verses of Matthew, uh, we find out that Joseph was spoken to uh, by a dream. Um, it's kind of interesting because Christmas is a season that we talk a lot about dreaming and dreams and uh, dreaming of a white Christmas and that sort of thing. Uh, but I don't know about you, but I'm a little bit skeptical of dreams. I don't necessarily think that God is going to speak to me in my dreams. I don't often make life choices uh, based on what happened in a dream that I had. Uh, and yet Joseph was a man who uh, received uh, lots of information from God um, by angels, but through uh, dreams. And so uh, it, it just occurred to me um, that this is a, pass a very interesting passage that makes us wonder exactly uh, how reliable the story is. I mean, this is a, a truly uh, a dreamer. Uh, like I said, Christmas is a season uh, where we talk about dreams. Even if you're just uh, a secular uh, Christmas observer, uh, Santa Claus and all those sorts of things, uh, you, uh, you, you kind of think about the, the dreaming that's going on and, and, and you, you there's always a doubt there. You know, is this really something that, you know, is true? Uh, and, and even if you don't celebrate Christmas in that kind of secular Santa Claus sense, uh, but just sort of like in the generic, uh, goodwill to all mankind, peace on earth. Uh, we like to say those things, but in the back of our mind, it's like, it's eh, kind of a dream. That's not going to happen. Uh, peace on earth. That's uh, been trying to get there, you know, for uh, centuries uh, millennia. And if you're a religious observer of Christmas, then obviously we think of the beautiful story of a, a baby born in a manger to a virgin and the angels appearing and the shepherds uh, getting the message. And, and it still kind of sounds a little bit hard to believe. It's, it's, it's almost like a story that's difficult for us uh, to really accept as a historical account. And yet Matthew has written in his gospel these elements of the story because they really did happen and because uh, they really are uh, uh, historical. Whether or not you want to accept that or believe that, um, it is uh, the reason that he wrote these, uh, this narrative in his gospel. 
what I'd like to share with us uh, tonight is just a couple of things. I, I think there's probably two reasons, uh, two purposes that Matthew had in mind when he put these words down and when he uh, wrote this narrative. Uh, I think that we're being faithful to uh, his intention and to his purpose when we look at these uh, two things about this story. But then I'd also like to share two things that probably uh, weren't really the purpose of the narrative and probably aren't really uh, what the, uh, the reason that they're in the scriptures, but they're lessons, life lessons that I think we can learn uh, from what is told uh, in, this, in this story. First of all, what would be the purpose? What would be the reason uh, that Matthew tells us this particular narrative. And, and I think there's two reasons. And the first one is that it continues a theme that Matthew has already developed as he tells us the, about the birth of Jesus and the coming of the Messiah. He wants to highlight the fact that the Messiah came from very humble beginnings, uh, that he was... Uh, comes from troubled beginnings, uh, comes from a time uh, when we can uh, believe and see that uh, it's not exactly the way we would think that the God of the universe, the creator of the stars, the creator of, the, the, of all of life, the, the creator of the universe that we can see would come to earth, that he would be born in a in a stable, in an insignificant little town, um, born to a family that was very poor, um, that he would be despised and rejected all uh, from the very beginning, really. And so Matthew continues to uh, emphasize this humble, troubled beginning of the Messiah uh, by showing us that uh, from the very beginning, uh, the powers that be, Herod wanted to kill uh, Jesus, and uh, they have to um, escape to Egypt. Uh, even when they come back, Matthew tells us, they settle in another despised little town of Nazareth, a place that was ridiculed at the time uh, for having uh, nothing really good to say about it. So Matthew is starting out his gospel account of the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, coming to save us, but through very humble very troubled, very difficult beginnings. I think that we should have comfort in that. What that tells us is that the gospel is good news to the humble, to the poor, to the troubled, to the despised, to the rejected people. The gospel is good news to them because Jesus started his life and actually lived his entire life and went through his death as a despised, rejected, and a man that we've seen in other prophecies up leading up to the uh, birth of Jesus, that he was a man of sorrows, a man who knew what uh, sorrow was and what difficulty uh, was in his life. That should be good news to those of us who feel that we are in that category of despised, rejected, uh, insignificant people. Uh, the good news of the gospel belongs to us. But I don't think that's 
the main purpose that uh, Matthew is highlighting here. Uh, I think there's a second uh, reason, and that is uh, he wants to show the fulfillment of the prophecies, the prophecies about the birth of the Messiah. And he's trying to highlight in in several different ways that uh, the birth of Jesus and the coming of Jesus as the Messiah fulfilled uh, some of these prophecies. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to uh, preach at a church, and uh, I really don't even remember what my sermon was about. I don't remember what I said, but it must have been pretty good because at the end of the service, uh, the choir director came and talked to me. And she said uh, that uh, she'd like to invite me over to her home uh, for a dinner. And uh, she told me that her husband was was an atheist. And uh, she thought maybe I could talk to him and uh, convince him, I guess, of uh, the existence of God. What I didn't know at the time, because I hastily said, yeah, that sounds great. Uh, When do we want to do this? What I later found out was that I was only one of five or six people who had already gone to try to convince this uh, man of the existence of God. Well, it just happened that I had read a book that week, that same week, uh, that kind of gave me an idea of what I might say uh, to this young man. And so we went, I went, we sat down, we had a really nice meal. And uh, just as we were kind of getting to the dessert and coffee part, uh, he kind of pushed his uh, chair back from the table and he said, okay, uh, have at it. And I was like, what do you mean? And he said, well, I know why you're here. <laughs> he said, uh, go ahead, tell me what, uh, what you want to tell me. And, uh, and I said, well, uh, I, I really did, didn't come uh, to convince you of anything, or I don't really have anything uh, prepared uh, to say, but I have a question for you. I said, I'd like to ask you, what is the God that you don't believe in, what is he like? And he looked at me and he said, what do you mean? And I said, you say you don't believe in God, but that means you've got some kind of a concept of a God and that God you don't believe in. And he started off he, to answer the question. And I mean, he went on a roll of all the things he had heard from Christians all his life uh, about all the suffering in the world, about all how judgmental God is and how he's against this and he's against that and he condemns these kind of people and he hates these kind of people. And he just went on this long rant about that. Uh, and, uh, and after he was finished, I said, you know what? I don't believe in that God either. <laughs> That is not the God that reveals himself in the scriptures. And so I challenged this young man. I said, rather than rejecting a caricature of a God that maybe you've heard from Christians or from other people or from preachers or who knows where, rather than rejecting that God, why don't you just go to the scriptures, go to the Bible, and I suggested that he start in the Gospel of John, just go to the Gospels, Read them for yourself and, and see what Jesus says about himself or what the, what the God of the Bible, how does he reveal himself? And then decide whether you believe or not in that God, not the God that people have uh, told you about. 
Why do I, why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because, uh, by the way, uh, a, a year or so later, he became a Christian. I don't know whether I had anything to do with that or not. I would like to think that at least I planted the seed. I don't know. But I do know that he became a Christian. Not only that, but he became a leader in his church and as far as I know, still is until this day. But why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because Matthew is pointing us back to a passage of Scripture. One of the things that I learned uh, early on in my uh, studies of the Scripture is uh, something that we don't often think about, but is very true, that when the Scriptures were written, they weren't written with chapters and verses. Those were added centuries later. Especially for the Old Testament passages, keep in mind that the Jewish people uh, treasured the scriptures, but they were on scrolls and they had to be rolled out and you had to find what you wanted to read in these long, huge scrolls. And they couldn't say, and in this particular part, uh, Matthew couldn't say, like it says in Hosea chapter 1 verse 1. He couldn't say that. All he could do was quote the little bit that we have here in the scriptures where he quotes actually Hosea uh, chapter 1 uh, verse 1 uh, where uh, he says that the prophets said that Jesus would come out of Egypt. So it's just a really short little phrase there, but it comes from Hosea Chapter one, uh, chapter eleven, verse one, and so I'd like to read that entire chapter because basically, what I think Matthew's saying is, just like Hosea talked about in this particular section of his prophecy, this is what's happening here. So let's read Hosea chapter eleven, beginning with verse one, but going through the entire chapter. It says, "When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt." I called my son. That's the part that um, Matthew quotes. Out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Will they not return to Egypt, and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent? A sword will flash in their cities, it will devour their false prophets, put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. Even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt trembling like sparrows, from Assyria fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord." What does this pa passage tell us in Hosea? It tells us 
that God is a loving, compassionate, merciful, patient God. I don't know what you've heard about the God of the Old Testament, but a lot of people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, he was, he was cruel, he was mean, he, was, uh, he uh, annihilated whole countries and whole peoples, and uh, he was, uh, we, we find grace in the New Testament and, and under Jesus. He was kind and he was loving. But no, the God of the Old Testament, if you'll go back and read his own words, what he says you'll find that he too was a compassionate and loving God. And I think that's what Matthew is highlighting as he tells us that Jesus came to fulfill this prophecy. I see in this chapter of Hosea uh, twice where uh, Israel responds to something God does and once where God responds to something Israel does. First of all, uh, in, very, in the very first verse, it says, uh, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called him. So it tells us in the very first verse that, that God loved his people of Israel. He loved them. He cared for them. But what was their response? Verse 2. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to Baals. They burned incense to images. See if you can feel the passion of these words as God expresses, this was my people. These were my children. I loved them. I called them. I protected them. But what did they do? They rejected me. They went off and sacrificed to false gods. They created images of their own uh, gods, and they continued to sin. And then it says in verse 3, another thing that he does, he says, it was I, God speaking, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking them by the arms. Ephraim's just another name for Israel. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a synonym for the northern kingdom of Israel. And uh, basically what God is saying is, I taught you, I'm your father. I taught you how to walk. I lifted you up. I, I, I bent down to give you food. I lifted you up. I was a father to you. But what did Israel do? They did not realize it was I who healed them. In other words, they just, they just didn't pay any attention. They just didn't realize this is God doing this. So many times today, the same thing happens. God is gracious. He's merciful. He's loving. He does everything he possibly can to communicate his love to us. And we don't even realize it's him. Or, worse yet, we continue sinning and we reject him. But what was God's response to something Israel did? We see that in verse 7 of this chapter 11 of Hosea. In verse 7 it says, My people are determined to turn from me. Let those words sink in. My people are determined to turn from me. There are people like that today. They are determined that they will not follow God. That for some reason they have decided in their mind that they will not do it. But what is God, what's, what's his response to that? Verse eight, 
But how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I treat you like Adma, and how can I make you like Zeboiim? Those are two uh, towns close to Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed uh, in, the, in uh, the judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. God's response, even when we sin, even when we rebel, even when we reject, even when we're stubborn, even when we do the very worst we can possibly imagine and are determined that we will not follow God, his response is love, compassion, mercy, and he wants us to come out of Egypt. He wants us to be saved. What does that tell me? That tells me that the gospel is good news for rebels, for rebellious people. <laughs> God is patient enough. He's kind enough. He's gracious enough. He has enough mercy that he will wait, he will love, and he will keep calling. No matter how rebellious we get, no matter what we do to reject him, no matter how determined we are that we will not submit, he continues to love us. I think that was the purpose that Matthew put this particular story into uh, his narrative. Uh, I listened to a podcast of a Jewish rabbi uh, named Daniel Lapp, and I, I enjoy listening to him because he has a, a very uh, interesting way of looking at the scriptures and talking about them. And uh, uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin says that uh, throughout the Old Testament, Egypt is always a symbol of slavery. It's always a, a symbol of uh, captivity. And uh, when uh, Hosea, or when uh, Matthew references Hosea's prophecy and says, out of Egypt I called my son, what he's saying is that I'm providing a savior. I'm providing a loving, merciful, graceful, uh, gracious God, a savior for my people. That's the kind of God that we find in the scriptures. Don't reject some caricature of God that somebody has given you. Don't reject what some Christian who hasn't really thought it through has said about God, but uh, go to the scriptures and find out what God says about himself. Now, as we close, I'd like to share a couple of incidental lessons that I don't really think were the purpose of Matthew. I wouldn't really say that this is why it's in the Bible, but I think it's something that we can learn uh, as, we, uh, um, as we look at this story. And the first thing that I see is that uh, God is not always logical. Uh, what he does doesn't always make sense to us. In fact, sometimes uh, it seems like he does the impossible, something that could be considered impossible. Why do I say this? I say this because uh, it's, it's always interested me, it's intrigued me in this uh, chapter how Matthew summarizes what many people had to have thought, I think, had to have thought back then, the contradictions of the prophecies. The prophecy said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We read that uh, when the Magi came. Uh, and they asked, where is he going to be born? They said, well, the prophets, prophets say it's going to be in Bethlehem. So he was going to be born in Bethlehem. But the prophecies also said he was going to come out of Egypt. 
Well, if he was going to be born in Bethlehem, how's he going to come out of Egypt? And then the prophecies also said that he would be called a Nazar- uh, from Nazareth, a Nazarite. Well, how is he going to be from Nazareth if he's born in Bethlehem, if he's coming out of Egypt? It sounds contradictory. It sounds like we're saying uh, too many different things. In, but Matthew, in just a few short verses, gives us uh, a summary that shows that it makes perfect sense that the prophets were right. He was born in Bethlehem, but he came out of Egypt, and he settled in Nazareth. He was Jesus from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, who came out of Egypt. I don't know what struggles and ideas and thoughts are in your mind that make you skeptical of Christianity or skeptical of the Scriptures. I don't know what keeps you from understanding or accepting that this is truth. But I'm pretty sure that you've thought it through and that there's just some things that just don't quite fit for you. And what I want to challenge you is that the gospel is good news for skeptics. Because you don't have to understand it all and it doesn't have to always make sense at the, at the time. But God knows what he's doing. He can bring contradictory, apparently opposing ideas. He can bring them together uh, in truth. And I, while I say I don't think that's necessarily what Matthew's trying to prove here, I think it's a lesson that we can learn uh, from uh, the scriptures. The second thing that I think... Uh, we can learn from this story is that God does not usually, generally speaking, God does not remove the harm or the injustices in the world, even the suffering of innocent people. I don't know about you, but when I read that story of how Herod killed all the baby boys, two years old and younger, uh, in the Bethlehem and the surrounding area, it just, it just seems so cruel. God could easily have kept that from happening. He could easily have taken Herod out of the picture so that Jesus didn't have to be taken down to Egypt. He could easily have solved the problem, but he didn't. He allowed this suffering to happen. He allowed these mothers to lose their children he allowed Jesus to be taken into a foreign land, hidden away. He allowed this evil king to continue to reign. Why did he do that? Why would he allow that sort of suffering? I think if I knew the answer to that question, I would be able to, I'd be a millionaire. <laughs> um, but what I, the only thing I can tell you is that, uh, first of all, we have to consider this in the light of what we just said in the previous lesson, and that is that God can take contradictory things and make sense out of them. And while we can't necessarily, in our own minds, figure this out, he can. So we have to trust that, for the first of all. We just have to trust that, uh, that he does know what he's doing. But the second thing that I think uh, helps us to understand in some way uh, how a, a loving, compassionate, gracious, merciful God could allow innocent children, innocent mothers and fathers to suffer in this way, we just have to understand 
the value that God places on free will, the value he places on allowing men and women, you and me, to make our own choices, to do our own thing, to act whatever we th- the way we think is best. He knows it's not the best thing. He knows it's not right. He knows it's not just. He knows it's not good. But he values so much our willingness, our ability to make our own choices that he gives us that freedom. It's very difficult to understand, and it's one of the reasons many people simply cannot uh, accept the good news of uh, the gospel. Several years ago, about the same time that I talked to this young man who didn't believe in God, I read a very interesting book. It's written by R.C. Sproul. It's still available, and the book is called um, If There Is a God, Why Are There Atheists? And it's basically written as a response to the psychological arguments that atheists give as to if there is no God, why are there religions? And you've probably read many of these uh, philosophical and uh, psychological arguments for atheism that basically say, excuse me, for Christianity or religion, that basically say because humans are so frail and because we fear the future so much and because we can't explain certain things that we don't know yet uh, how to explain we make up gods we make up gods that fit in and fill in the gaps and that explain things that we don't quite understand and so there's no god he doesn't exist but there are religions because humans need that uh you've all you often heard i'm sure the phrase opiate of the people it's just it's just like a drug that kind of keeps people happy and calm and 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 going through life and so that's why there are religions even though uh, there is no god rc sproul wrote this book uh as an answer to that argument uh, basically saying but if there is a God why are there atheists and it's very interesting in the book I, I would challenge you to uh, to get a copy of this book and read it but one of his arguments is that actually uh, it's the we could use the same argument against atheists because it is true that uh, humans might invent gods like the Greek and Roman gods. The Greek gods and the Roman gods were people, were, were gods that shared a lot of our, uh, like, they were a lot like us. They had their problems, they had their failures, they weren't perfect in any sense. Um, and so we could kind of relate to those kind of gods, and they may help explain, you know, why the sun comes up and goes down and that sort of thing, if we want to believe and invent in those gods. But R.C. Sproul says nobody would ever, for psychological reasons at least, nobody would ever invent a God like Jehovah God. Jehovah is a God who sees everything you do. He knows everything you think. He watches every second of your life, and he demands that you be holy. That's not a comforting thought. (laughs) That is not the kind of God that you would invent to bring hope and peace to yourself because he is an all-knowing, all-present, demanding, holy, perfect God. 
And so R.C. Sproul says, most people can't handle that. They can't handle the thought of a God who demands obedience, who demands holiness, who knows what I'm thinking, who knows what I, everything I do, who is always present in my life, who never leaves me. I can't handle that. So it's easier psychologically to just say, nah, he doesn't exist. That God doesn't exist. I don't, I don't believe in him. The interesting thing is that that God lets you not believe in him if you don't want to. He values so much the free will that you have to make your choices that he will let you destroy your life if that's what you choose to do because he has given you that free will. And I know that's hard sometimes to accept and hard to believe, but that is basically what I think we can learn from this passage of Scripture, that God doesn't take out the heartache. He doesn't take away the injustices. He doesn't remove us from the world, but he calls us out of that slavery and into the freedom. C.S. Lewis, there's a very famous quote by the author C.S. Lewis that talks about this. C.S. Lewis wrote these words. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is open. What C.S. Lewis is saying is that those who end up in hell end up there because they chose it. Because they didn't want to believe in God. Because they were determined not to follow God. And in the end, after he's tried to call, after he's tried to show compassion, after he's tried to show grace, in the end, that God says, if that's what you want, that's what you get. Eternal separation from the presence of God. Maybe you're one of those people. Maybe you're in that situation that you just, it's just, this is just too hard to believe. This is like fairy tale stuff. This is like dreams. This is, this is, this is too hard to believe. And I just, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to accept it. I would challenge you to at least think it through. I would challenge you to read the book. If there is a God, uh, why are there atheists? And realize that the God you're rejecting is probably not the God of the Scriptures. It's probably the caricature of what some Christian, unthinking, never really, just repeating words that they've learned from Sunday school or saying things that they've always been taught. Now, I don't disparage that. You shouldn't disparage that because there's a lot of atheists that do the same thing. They just don't believe in God because, well, that's just the way they've been taught. This is the way they, they've never really thought through why they don't believe in God. So uh, that's okay if uh, a lot of people live their lives that way. But if you're a thinking person, if you're somebody who wants to investigate, if you want to really 
search out the truth, then at least give the God of the Scriptures a chance. Read what he says, not what I say, not what some other Christian, not what some preacher, not what uh, some book about Christianity says. Read what God himself says. He says, how could I turn my back on you? You're my child. I taught you to walk. I gave you your food. I cared for you. I love you. And with that message, I think Matthew finishes out the Christmas story telling us that the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the Almighty Creator, was born in a manger to a poor family in a forgotten, insignificant town, lived and grew up, rejected and despised because God loves you. Let's pray. Father God, truly at this time, as the Christmas season comes to an end, we think about the, the myths and the fantasies and the fables that go along in this season. Many of them are so absurd we understand that they just can't really be true. But I pray that you would keep us and help us and protect us from rejecting the unbelievable yet true story of how you came to live among us in order to save us. And I pray that if there's some despised, rejected person out there listening right now, or if there's some skeptic or some rebel or someone who just can't believe, I just pray right now that your powerful Holy Spirit would reach into their hearts and minds, comfort them with the good news, and bring them into the family. And we thank you, and we honor you, and we praise you for being the holy, gracious, merciful, compassionate God that you are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Dad. I love that perspective on that story in Matthew because um, I know that my dad, uh, he, he, he knows the perspective of, uh, of a lot of people who've been struggling with the scriptures. <coughs> Excuse me. And I think he particularly knows that because um, I was also one of those people and he helped to talk me through a lot of those seasons in my life. I told the story in a sermon a few weeks ago about how I had this crazy uh, teacher in school that was like a movie character who was trying to get convince all of us not to believe in any of these stories in the Bible. And I remember I had a lot of thoughts, a lot of ideas, a lot of things that were confusing me. But the thing that ended up convincing me uh, the most of Christianity, more than any of those arguments, more than anything else, was the example of my of my dad and my family. I saw that my family really lived out their beliefs and that it really meant something and really changed them into be the the, the kind of good God honoring people that they wanted to be.
And as I did that, as I started to actually read the Bible itself for myself, I started to see that the God that is described there is is not necessarily the God that you may have heard of, but he is a God that I love so dearly. And then I think anybody who really uh, digs into the scriptures will be able to, 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 to really see that as well. So as we're starting the new year here, I wanted to kind of, uh, in a way, I guess, pray that that uh, we would be able to be the kind of people who could be those good examples, who could really be the, the, the good representations of exactly who this God who is gracious and compassionate is. And recently, I, I love, there's this, this section in the book of Numbers, it's, it's, a, it's a blessing that is pronounced over the people of Israel. And so I wanted to end uh, our service today just by, you know, speaking the words of that blessing uh, over all of us, over all of us here in this church. And I just, I just want to pray and speak that blessing uh, from the scriptures over you and hope that this year will be a year where we can really see uh, these, these truths come to life and where we can really kind of be the kind of people that, that show a God who is a God that people really want to have a relationship with. And that blessing says, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he turn his face to you. And may he give you peace. And that is my prayer for you this year. We'll see you next week.